The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Nitin Thiem, podcast editor for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Mary Rice, who is the first author of an interesting paper entitled Long-Term Exposure to Traffic Emissions and Fine Particulate Matter and Lung Function Decline in the Framingham Heart Study. This article is published in the March 15, 2015 American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Rice is a member of the Division of Pulmonary, Critical Care, and Sleep Medicine at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and an instructor in medicine at the Harvard Medical School. She's also a member of the American Thoracic Society Environmental Health Policy Committee. Dr. Rice, thanks for joining us today. So, Dr. Rice, let's start with some background for our listeners. Your paper discusses PM 2.5 and PM 10 when describing levels of fine and coarse particulate matter, respectively. Can you tell us how PM 2.5 and PM 10 are measured? Certainly. Fine particulate matter, or PM 2.5, consists of tiny particles less than 2.5 microns in diameter, and it includes particles that are released during the combustion process, such as metals and organic matter, and those particles are so small that they deposit all the way into the alveolar spaces. Uh, PM10, on the other hand, consists of particles less than 10 microns in diameter, and that includes particles in the size range of, say, dust and pollen, but it also includes the tinier particles in the PM2.5 range. And both of those, PM2.5 and PM10, are measured through inertial impactors that essentially accelerate air through a jet and remove particles above a certain size, whether it be 10 microns for the PM10 or 2.5 microns for PM2.5. Thanks for that clarification. I believe in my background reading, I thought there was more literature around PM10, but I'd ask you to sort of give us some background and tell us what the evidence base is describing a relationship between both PM2.5 and PM10 levels and their effects on health. At this point, there have been a large number of studies spanning decades that have found that daily increases, so short-term, one- or two-day averages, increases in whether it be PM2.5 or PM10 are associated with a number of different adverse health outcomes, including lower lung function in healthy adults and in people with respiratory disease, increased hospital admissions for respiratory disease, increased mortality, including death due to all causes and death due to cardiovascular and respiratory causes. But More recently, in part because of geographic information systems that have allowed investigators to pinpoint the residence of study participants on the map and to allow the estimation of daily exposure to PM10 or PM2.5 at their home address using models of exposure, we're now able to look at much longer exposure averages to get a sense of what the chronic effects of air pollution exposure might be. And you're right that most of the earlier studies looked at PM10, and that's in part due to the fact that historically it was PM10 that was measured by most regulatory agencies. And some of the more notable studies looking at PM10 and PM2.5 for longer durations include the Sepaldia study, which was a study done in Switzerland 
and they published their results in 2007 in the New England Journal of Medicine. And in their study, they found that people whose PM10 levels declined more in the 1990s had a slower decline in lung function than people who lived in areas where the PM10 levels did not decline as much. And to give another example, another LIMAR paper examining long-term PM2.5 exposure measured by EPA monitors near the home was a women's health initiative. That was a study of 65,000 women, and and they found that the one-year average of PM2.5 was associated with a higher risk of cardiovascular events and a higher risk of death from cardiovascular disease over a period of six years. These are just two examples of some of the more notable studies on long-term air pollution exposure and health, but there are, of course, many other studies, and the list is growing. I'd like to talk to you about the cohort utilized in the study, and I'd ask you to clarify it a bit for us. Your group utilized the Framingham, Offspring, and third-generation cohort. Can you please describe this cohort for us in terms of where the people who were being followed were located geographically and tell us about their demographic characteristics and finally, whether you had to exclude any patients in the cohort for the purposes of this study. Certainly. The offspring and third-generation Framingham Heart Study cohorts are descendants of the original Framingham Heart Study, which I think uh, many people are familiar with. This original Framingham Heart Study was recruited in 1948 in the town of Framingham, Massachusetts, which is about 20 miles of Boston, and it included just over 5,000 men and women And the purpose of that study was to study risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And then in 1971, 5,100 of the original participants' adult children and their spouses were recruited and invited to participate in a similar cohort study, and that study was called the offspring cohort. And then again in 2002, the third-generation cohort, approximately 4,000 adult grandchildren of that original cohort were recruited and followed. And our study examined air pollution exposure and lung function among these two newer cohorts, the offspring and third-generation cohorts. In terms of their demographics, so describing the cohort overall, the age at the time of our study was 50 on average and not equally split among men and women. And the census tract median household income for these cohorts was 65000 which is above the national average, but still in sort of the middle socioeconomic range, and about half of them were college graduates. We did exclude current smokers from our primary analyses, and we did this because we expected that current smoking would have such an overwhelming effect on lung function that it would be unlikely that we would detect an association between long-term air pollution exposure and lung function in this group. But we did later include the current smokers uh, back again in sensitivity analyses. The cohort resides predominantly in the Northeast, and we did exclude people based on their location of residence for certain analyses. So one of the exposures we looked at was the distance of the home to the nearest roadway. For that analysis, we looked at people who lived less than one kilometer from a major roadway in our analysis. And we did that because our intent was to examine the effects of traffic-related pollution on lung function. And people who live that far from a major road may live in more rural areas, and our concern was that when you're looking at distance to roadways at exposure and you're kilometers away from a major road, that measure might tell you more about rural exposures and have very little to do with what their actual air pollution exposure is related to the road. And then for PM2.5, we only included participants with addresses in the Northeast where our PM2.5 model has been developed and validated. 
Uh, fortunately, the vast majority of the Framingham participants live in the New England area. One more exclusion criteria is that we, for PM2.5 as an exposure, we only looked at people's lung function testing after the year 2001 because our exposure data started in the year 2000. Thank you for that breakdown, Dr. Rice. I just would clarify one thing for our listeners then. So you mentioned the exclusions where you wouldn't follow people who lived in more rural areas. And, you know, when we think of Framingham, we think of the town of Framingham in Massachusetts. But this third-generation cohort, you follow them wherever they are as long as they are continuing that third-generation cohort from the original Framingham study. Is that correct? That's correct. The original Framingham Heart Study was recruited in the town of Framingham. But these two studies are the descendants of that original cohort, and they live all over the country, actually. The majority of them who come in for their repeat studies do live fairly close to Boston, but they generally reside in the northeastern United States. So let's get to the specifics of this study. In this cohort, you evaluated relationships between lung function and two different measures that would reflect long-term air pollution exposure. Number one, distance from home to nearest major roadway. That would reflect traffic exposure. And number two, as we discussed the PM2.5, the annual average at the home address was estimated by a land use model. So when I first read this paper, I was trying to figure out if I needed to move how close I was to a major roadway. So I wanted to clarify, how did you define a major roadway? And then for the second part of the relationship you evaluated, how does the land use model estimate PM2.5? We define major roadways using a U.S. Census feature class system that categorizes roads across the country, and these are defined as A1, A2, or A3 roads, and those include major interstate highways and also state and some county highways. So these are generally heavily trafficked roads and highways. For PM2.5, we used a model that uses satellite data Essentially, the way it works is the model estimates daily PM2.5 exposure at the home address using satellite measurements of the aerosol optical density as a measure of the particle abundance in the atmospheric column above any specific location on the map. And these satellite measurements are at a spatial resolution of 10 by 10 kilometers. But these were then resolved to a specific location within 50 by 50 meters resolution using land use terms including things like nearby sources of PM2.5, open spaces, elevation, the prevailing weather conditions at any particular location on the map. And then those estimates were calibrated using measurements from ground monitoring stations located throughout the Northeast. Great. I guess now is the right time to ask, what were your study findings? And we found that exposure to major roadway and PM2.5 at the home address were both associated with a lower FEV1 and FEC and an accelerated rate of lung function decline between exams. Participants who lived less than 100 meters from a major roadway had on average a 23 milliliter lower FEV1 and a 5 milliliter per year faster decline in FEV1 compared to our reference group living over 400 meters from a major road. And for PM2.5, we found, at least in our study area in the northeastern U.S., that the interquartile range of exposure, which is the difference between the 25th percentile of the distribution and the 75th percentile of the distribution, was 2 micrograms per cubic meter. And we found that each 2 microgram per cubic meter increase in the average of PM2.5 was associated with a 13.5 milliliter lower FEV1 and also a 2.1 milliliter per year faster decline in FEV1. 
interestingly, we found that both distance to roadway and PM2.5 had associations with FEV1 and FEC that were very similar. So we really didn't find any evidence of an obstructive effect. And when we looked at the ratio of FEV1 and FEC as an outcome, those associations were very weak or absent. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I always found that interesting that the drop in the FEP1 and the FEC were more consistent with a restrictive rather than an obstructive effect on lung function. Obviously, you know, we have our hypotheses when we get into in our research workup. I was wondering, did that finding surprise you? Well, I wasn't that surprised, perhaps a little surprised. I I think the jury is still out uh, when it comes to whether long-term air pollution exposure causes obstructive lung disease, at least in the United States at the air pollution levels that we are currently experiencing. As I mentioned earlier, large number of studies using administrative data have pretty clearly demonstrated that short-term air pollution exposure makes obstructive lung disease worse, resulting in asthma and COPD exacerbations. And so I think for that reason, it's very tempting to assume that long-term air pollution results in airflow obstruction. But the limited literature that's out so far on these longer-term estimates of air pollution exposure, they haven't really consistently shown that air pollution is associated with airflow obstruction. We've seen kind of mixed results. Just to give an example, LaPoule and colleagues recently published an article in the Blue Journal in 2014 involving the normative aging study of elderly men. And in that study, they found that long-term estimates of exposure to black carbon, which is traffic-related constituent of particulate matter, were associated with a faster decline in both FEV1 and FEC, much like we did. When they looked at the cross-sectional effect of black carbon exposure on baseline lung function, they found a stronger effect for FEV1 than FEC, which suggests an obstructive pattern of effects. But then when they looked at the change in lung function over time, the longitudinal effect of black carbon was stronger for FVC compared to FVV1, suggesting more of a restrictive pattern. And to give another example, I mentioned the Swiss study, the Sepaldia study, looking at PM10 exposure and lung function decline. And the pattern of that effect that they identified was pretty convincingly obstructive with a lower FVV1 and a lower FEV1 to FEC ratio in association with PM10, and no strong association with FEC. So I think it's still unclear. I think all of these studies examine slightly different long-term air pollution exposures, black carbon and PM10, and those studies compared to distance to roadway and PM2.5 using satellite data in our study. And um, I think more research is really needed to examine whether the chronic effects of long-term air pollution exposure are obstructive or restrictive, or perhaps they cause both obstructive and restrictive effects. And also whether the specific effects of the different pollutants are different also remains to be seen. As with any good research, many more questions come out of it. And so I guess I'd ask you, you know, I was particularly struck. Again, this is a, a cohort of general adult population, excluding smokers, and you found that significant drop in lung function based on the measures we discussed. So I was wondering if you could put those results into clinical context for our listeners. Well, what is the significance of the drop in lung function you found in patients who live closer to major roadways and with long-term exposure to higher PM 2.5? Certainly. We compared the magnitude of the associations that we found to the effect of former smoking in this cohort, for example. So as I mentioned earlier, we found that people who lived less than 100 meters from a major roadway had a 5 milliliter per year faster decline in FEV1. 
and we found that a 2 microgram per cubic meter increase in PM2.5 was associated with a 2.1 milliliter faster decline in FEV1. And when we looked in our study population of former never smokers, people who had formerly smoked had an additional decline in FEV1 of 5 milliliters per year compared to people who had never smoked. And so that means that at least within this cohort, the size of the additional decline in FEV1 each year in association with living less than 100 meters from a major road was the same in size as the effect of formerly smoking in our study population. The additional decline in FEV1 for an interquartile range increase in the PM2.5 was equivalent to almost half or 43% of the effect of former smoking. You can also look at it in another way that I find useful uh, to think of our effect size in terms of the natural decline in lung function over time. As you probably know, this is somewhat depressing, but after the age of 35, lung function uh, steadily declines, and the average rate of decline is roughly 25 to 35 milliliters per year, and it accelerates with age. Using that benchmark, living less than 100 meters from a road was associated with an additional decline in FEV1 that was about 15 to 20 percent of the expected decline rate due to aging. And people who lived at the 75th percentile of PM2.5 exposure compared to the 25th percentile had a faster rate of FEV1 decline that was 5 to 8% of the expected rate due to aging. And you can certainly see over the years that loss of lung function certainly adds up. Thank you for explaining that. I'd like to now talk about some of the challenges this type of study would face, and I assume one major one would be the issue of generalizability. I know other studies of air pollution report that you can have varied findings in different locales when they've looked at different parts of the country. And I suspect there are also ethnic and socioeconomic differences in this cohort, maybe compared to some other groups that our listeners are, are caring for. There's always the unanswerable question of whether there are local and measurable factors in the Northeast that may prevent these results from being as reproducible in another area. With that being said, do you have any comment on any particular limitations of your findings? This is a very good and very important question, I think. One unfortunate reality of the Framingham offspring and third-generation cohorts is that they're not racially diverse, and they reflect the racial makeup of the population of Framingham in 1948, which was nearly 100% of white race. As I mentioned before, the socioeconomic status of the Framingham offspring and third-generation participants is on average middle class, And there is a range of the census tract income of where they lived, but it's not a very broad range. We don't have, for example, very many people living in poverty who are part of this cohort. So it's possible that the findings of our study may not be generalizable to other groups, such as people living in poverty, people of other racial groups, people living in other parts of the United States outside of the Northeast. But the reverse is also possible that it could be that some of these groups, perhaps people uh, of lower socioeconomic position, could be more susceptible to the health effects of air pollution exposure. We explored this somewhat in our study using the distribution that we had to work with, and we didn't find differences by neighborhood income or education. But I would say we couldn't fully assess for increased susceptibility in the very low socioeconomic groups in this particular cohort. As I understand it, based on pollutant levels, the air quality in Framingham is not bad. Do you think your findings actually may underestimate the decline in lung function one might see living near major roadways in a more polluted area? You're right in saying that the air quality in the Boston area isn't that bad. It is generally compliant with EPA standards. There are other areas in the U.S., particularly 
parts of California, parts of Pennsylvania, Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana. There's other regions as well where levels can be substantially higher than they are here in the Boston area. Your question as to whether associations with distance to road and lung function might be greater in these areas, I think depends on the relative contribution of traffic to ambient pollution levels. Just thinking about other big cities with different traffic patterns, such as L.A., for example, there are huge multi-lane highways, and the particulate pollution resulting from the highway traffic is very likely to be, and actually has been shown to be, greater than what we see from the A1, A2, A3 roads here in the Boston area. I would expect that we might see larger effects on lung function among those who live right by those very large, busy highways in L.A. than what we observed closer to the highways in the New England area, simply because those people are so heavily exposed to vehicle exhaust. On the other hand, in less metropolitan areas, stationary sources like power plants may be a more important contributor to the ambient pollution levels and traffic. And the density of the traffic on the roads in those areas is certainly less than what we experience here in Boston and surrounding areas. So in these more rural places where the PM2.5 levels may actually be quite a bit higher due to other stationary sources and where therefore PM2.5 may be a bigger public health problem, we might also expect to see a weaker association with distance to roadway simply because there are fewer cars on the road. So I want to wrap up the podcast and consider where we go from here. Your findings of worse lung function in healthy adults exposed to traffic pollution adds to a, a growing body of literature showing negative cardiopulmonary effects of traffic-related air pollution. In fact, you mentioned a lot of the background literature, and, and there was also another paper Leary and colleagues had an interesting study in the Blue Journal last year describing traffic-related air pollution increases in right ventricular size that's independent of underlying lung disease. Thinking about this, my hope and suspicion is that our air quality will continue to improve. The editorial associated with your paper describes the effects of the Clean Air Act. So I guess going forward, the question to me is whether important air pollution research such as yours, the next step studying specific vulnerable populations such as patients with COPD who may be particularly vulnerable to the clinical sequelae of these negative cardiopulmonary effects as opposed to a healthy population that may be able to tolerate that in an era of continuing to improve air quality, or should study also be focused on particularly polluted areas? So I just want to get your thoughts on where do you see this field going forward? Thank you for this question. Yes, this is an area of great interest to me, understanding who the people are, who are more susceptible, and also understanding what the health effects of air pollution are in the context of air quality that continues to improve. The effects that we have identified in this particular cohort are the average associations with the lung function in our study population. And surely, there must be subgroups who are more susceptible than the average person. In our work in the Framingham Heart Study, we try to identify subgroups who might be more susceptible to the effects of traffic-related air pollution. Just as an example, we found some borderline evidence that former smokers might experience larger decrements in lung function in association with PM2.5 than never smokers. 
We also tested whether people with asthma or COPD or, as I mentioned before, people with lower socioeconomic position had larger effects. And we didn't find any evidence of increased susceptibility in those subgroups in these analyses. But as I mentioned earlier, true poverty was uh, rare in Framingham. And we also were not well-powered to test for susceptibility by COPD diagnosis, which was also overall relatively rare in, in this cohort. And going forward, I'm still an early-stage investigator, and I've proposed future work to look at both short- and long-term air pollution exposure in people with clinical COPD. That's something I am particularly interested in going forward because there is now convincing hospital admission data that I think we can safely conclude that short-term spikes in exposure exacerbate COPD. But as our air quality continues to improve, not very much is known about these day-to-day changes in air pollution exposure at these current levels and how it affects the disease course. And COPD is so incredibly common. Non-smoking-related contributors to this disease remain still overall fairly poorly understood, and I think it's a very important public health issue and direction for future research to hone in on this potentially vulnerable population. Dr. Rice, I want to thank you for taking the time today to provide some insight into your paper the study findings of a drop in lung function comparable to the effects of former smoking, but in a healthy cohort of people who are exposed to higher levels of traffic emissions and PM2.5 is important. Though there are limitations to the study, as we discuss in this podcast, it adds to a growing evidence base describing the harmful effects of air pollution on lung function. This article from Dr. Rice and her colleagues, as well as an accompanying editorial from Dr. David Diaz-Sanchez, is published in the March 15th 2015 issue of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. You can find this as well as our other article discussion podcasts at atsjournals.org or you can subscribe in the iTunes store by typing American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine in the search box. I'm Nitin Seem for the Blue Journal.